At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and this is a very special moment in the Gilded Age social calendar. It's the opening of opera season. And as most of you know, it's also the moment for the premiere of season two of HBO's series created by Julian Fellows, The Gilded Age. To celebrate both and to give some insight into just what was going on at the opera in The Gilded Age, I am excited to share with you an encore presentation of one of the Gilded Gentlemen's most popular shows, the opening of the Metropolitan Opera, 1883. So get out your finest clothes, order up the carriage, and I'll see you at the opera. This week on The Gilded Gentlemen, I'm taking you to the opera. With our top hats, opera cloaks, and glasses, we'll be joining the Gilded Age elite for one of the most exciting evenings filled with drama on and off stage. The conductor has just appeared on the podium, so do join me. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, and welcome to the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, a show in which we take a close look at America's Gilded Age, France's Grande Belle Epoque, and the world of late Victorian and Edwardian England. I've just poured a nice cup of Earl Grey tea, one of my favorites in the afternoon, and I'm having it in one of my favorite cups, a real 19th century blue and white Canton cup. I hope you've poured a nice cup of tea, too, or maybe something stronger. So sit back and let me share with you some of the astonishing moments and inside story of how the Metropolitan Opera and its historic opening night came to be. On September 27th, 2021, today's current Metropolitan Opera had its opening night of the 2021-2022 season. And of course, what an incredible chance for celebration after this long period of darkened theaters and not being able to hear glorious music live for what has seemed so long. This opening night this year was filled perhaps with even more anticipation. The opera performed was itself a New York premiere by a new composer at the Met, and as you can imagine, the audience turned out dressed in their best to return not only to celebrate that historic moment, but also to celebrate a return to live opera. But today, 
I'm taking you back to another opening night. In fact, the opening night, when over 130 years ago, the history of this great opera house, the largest in the world, really began. The grand white marble opera house that you see today as the centerpiece of Lincoln Center was not the first incarnation of the Met. In fact, the first Met, the one that we'll be talking about today, was located farther downtown, just below what is now today's Times Square, and began long before the Broadway Theatre District came to be. That very first opening night, October 22nd, 1883, was fairly warm for a New York City October. The Gilded Age socialites who attended that night had returned to the city from summers on the Riviera, ere had closed up their cottages in Newport for a glittering winter season of balls, dinners, and theater in New York. Inside the brand new theater, there was a palpable air of anticipation and excitement. Alva Vanderbilt, was no doubt drumming her bejeweled fingers on the edge of the parterre box where she sat in her white brocade satin studded with pearls. She was waiting for the opera to begin, and the curtain was late. Gowned, bejeweled, diamond-studded ladies and sleek, elegant men in white tie were still making their way from their carriages into the lobby and getting settled in their seats. Elva sat in one of the 72 gilt boxes with a fine view of the stage, The best seats were in the three tiers of boxes that circled the sparkling auditorium. The horseshoe-shaped tiers soon caught the name, the Diamond Horseshoe, given the constant sparkling of the diamonds worn by its occupants. And one of the reasons that one came to the opera, after all, was to show off one's jewels. The color of the walls of the auditorium was actually changed three separate times in the early years of the theater to try to get the right background color to properly show off ladies' jewelry. The brand new Metropolitan Opera House had just been built on Broadway between 39th and 40th Street in what some felt was still the very reaches of civilized society. Most of the theater district at this point lay a bit more to the south, around Herald Square or even down to Union Square, but it was slowly, slowly, along with the wealthy, creeping uptown. The building of the Met, and indeed what made this opening night so significant in Gilded Age society, was that this was finally the chance for the newly moneyed industrialists, along with a few of the older guard, to show off their status as truly the financial royalty of not only New York, but of America. In the boxes around Alva, you could find more Vanderbilts, Astors, of course, Morgans, Galais, Warrens, Goulds, and Roosevelts. Truly the most important names known to all as owners and creators of the very infrastructure of the country. These were the kings of the railroads, of shipping, transportation, gas, oil, and of course, banking and investing. These Gilded Age financial monarchs had wanted a showplace to prove to anyone that happened to be looking that they had arrived and that they too could compete with the great capitals and great fortunes of Europe. All the major European cities had their opera houses, and just recently, in 1875, Paris had opened the doors of its stunning, opulent new palace of opera, the Palais Garnier, standing majestically at the end of the Avenue de l'Opéra. It was an architectural dream that combined Baroque and Renaissance and classical elements topped with shining bits of gilded bronze. The stately presence of this grand theater signaled that Paris was a leading force in the world of music and culture and style. 
Well, the power elite of New York wanted the same thing. And having found land, the original idea was to use Vanderbilt land near Grand Central Station. But upon further investigation, this parcel along Broadway seemed perfect, and they broke ground. The architect, J. Cleveland Cady, had his challenges since the goal of the new house was to offer the largest auditorium in the world, which it indeed did. However, that meant adjustments had to be made in the lobbies, stairwells, corridors, and backstage. The audience's experience of a comfortable, spacious auditorium was one thing, but to go backstage and see what singers and stagehands had to contend with was quite another. Throughout the Old Met's history from the Gilded Age up until the 1960s, stories of the lack of backstage space became famous, including the necessity of storing scenery outside the opera house propped up along 7th Avenue, and singers, some very important ones, having to rehearse on the roof or even in the washrooms. The cramped spaces inevitably led to delays in set changes and in moving scenery. The great German soprano Lili Lehmann, who sang frequently at the Met in its early years, did not mince words in her assessment. The opera house was not equipped for the newest mechanical demands. No one was accustomed to work rapidly, and so every change turned into a trial of patience. It was delayed by requests like, please let me have another nail here. Please fasten these steps, this barrier, this carpet. Then everything was attended to at a snail's pace. I gave my own assistance everywhere so as not to be put out by a fall or killed or torn to pieces. At last, I became mistress of this incredible confusion. Oh, my friends, let me tell you, the last thing that you want is a diva trying to insert her will into scene changes and operations backstage. As to the exterior architecture of the house, Katie chose for his style a more Italian Renaissance influence built of decidedly yellow brick, which was intended to mellow to a softer ivory as the years wore on. Detractors and competitors of the Metropolitan were disappointed by the look of this new house, particularly compared to the opulence of the Palais Garnier, and in fact, it came to be nicknamed by those not pleased with the look, the Yellow Brick Brewery. It's interesting to wonder just what Alva Vanderbilt thought as she sat in her box waiting for the curtain to go up on the performance of Gounod's Faust that night. The fact that the new Metropolitan Opera existed at all was, in fact, well, one could certainly argue, due to her. Or, more accurately, the results of a particularly dramatic snit that she managed to get herself into. Alva the granddaughter-in-law of the famous Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, and indeed, all the Vanderbilts were considered new money in Knickerbocker, New York. The point of all of this is that before the Met existed, New York's premier opera house was the Academy of Music, built mid-century in 1854 and located much further downtown on the corner of Irving Place and 14th Street. By the 1880s, the Academy was still elegant, but a little shopworn, but still put on grand opera with stars such as Adelina Patti and Christine Nielsen, who in particular went on to move uptown to the Met. But the Academy of Music was the stronghold of the old Knickerbocker families descended from the original Dutch and English settlers, and who made their money as merchants in early New York history, or later by investing in real estate and banking. 
One of the marks of holding a secure place in the mid-19th century post-Civil War New York was to own a box at the Academy of Music. The problem, of course, was that there were only 18 boxes in the entire theater and that they were all taken and they had been for decades by Knickerbocker families, just like the pews of Grace Church just a few blocks away. Alva Vanderbilt wanted a box at the opera. And she felt that since the Vanderbilt wealth, which of course far exceeded that of some of these older families, more than entitled her to one. Having made a case to acquire one through her husband, William Kay, known to everyone as Willie Kay, she was firmly and quite simply turned down. Even the immediate dispatch of a Vanderbilt lawyer down to the academy to see what could be done resulted in nothing she could live with and thus led to the aforementioned snit. The upshot of this entire incident was that her husband and others in a similar situation, which included again the aforementioned Morgans, Roosevelts, Goulets, and more Vanderbilts, decided to band together, raise a hefty cash from subscriptions, and haul off and go build their own house with as many boxes as they wanted. And that, my friends, is exactly what happened. Alva got her box at the opera. And a whole new opera house to boot. The way it worked, quite simply, and as Joanna Fiedler describes it in her book, Molto Agitato, the new Met was really just a set of box seats with an opera house built around them. It was the box holders who quite literally owned the Met and then hired an impresario to present opera, the kind of opera they wanted to see. This, by the way, is not the way it works today. And the rage for opera throughout most of the 19th century was for Italian opera. And much 19th century Italian opera was glorious. The work of Bellini, Donizetti, and Rossini, which emphasized beautiful florid singing, and the works of Verdi, which brought a new sense of drama and theater combined with the music to the stage. Richard Wagner, the great late 19th century German opera composer who was breaking established rules and had his own very definite ideas about new opera, had just built his own opera house in Bayreuth, Germany in 1876 for his experimental productions. But New York's passion for all things Wagner was still to come, and that first season at the Metropolitan, audiences heard only one, Lohengrin. The box holders hired a star-quality impresario, Henry Abbey, with a stellar credential, including presenting stars of the stage, such as Sarah Bernhardt and Edwin Booth. Abbey was hired to bring the box holders a premiere season of 19 fully staged Italian operas, complete with star Italian singers. Well, most of them. The thing with this was that many of the operas in the repertory at the time weren't actually Italian. There was plenty of real Italian opera for sure. The bel canto tradition of Bellini and Donizetti was alive and well, but other composers were making it big in the opera game. The French were turning out great operas. Gounod's Faust that opened the house, Bizet had written the perennial crowd-pleaser Carmen, and the grand spectacles by Giacomo Meyerbeer, less known today, were all written in French. And the new Wagner operas, along of course with some of those of Mozart, were written in German. Well, the answer to all of this was simply to sing everything in Italian, regardless of the language in which it was actually written. And that is exactly what happened. And my friends, 
let me just tell you that hearing Faust sung in Italian is just weird. Principal artists had to learn their roles all over again in Italian, and there were cases in subsequent seasons where the principals sang their roles in one language while the chorus sang their music in another. Edith Wharton, in capturing the linguistic confusion of the early seasons at the Met, nails it early in the Age of Innocence when she says, An unalterable and unquestioned law of the musical world required that the German text of French operas sung by Swedish artists should be translated into Italian for the clearer understanding of English-speaking audiences. You see, my friends, the issue at hand. In fact, this all-out attempt to create fake Italian opera extends to artists themselves. If you were born English or, God forbid, American, if you had any hope of a career whatsoever, you had to change your name into the most European and, of course, preferably Italian-sounding iteration you could, and then go out and conquer the stage. The bass baritone that sang Mephistopheles in Faust on that opening night at the Met was Franco Novaro, who in reality and when he signed his contracts, became the plain old Englishman Frank Nash. One great dramatic soprano from my home state of Maine, who began life as Lillian Gower Norton, went on to conquer world stages as Madame Lillian Nordica. My only choice as a beginning singer once upon a time, had I been part of this crowd, would have been to offer myself up as Carlo Remondi, of course, to great international acclaim. When the curtain finally did go up at the Met on that opening night, the audience heard a longtime New York favorite, Christine Nielsen, in the role of Marguerite, the object of Faust's affection. The Swedish soprano singing the role was singing in Italian. You see, Wharton wasn't kidding. And she had performed the role many times, even downtown at the Academy of Music, and truth be told, she was a little bit past her prime. But the offer that empresario Abby made her lured her uptown for a bit more continued fame and, of course, a better contract. One of the highlights in the opera Faust is the moment Marguerite, in her garden, finds a box with exquisite jewels left for her supposedly by an admirer and sings one of the opera's most famous arias known as the Jewel Song. During the opening night, following her rendition of the aria, the performance was stopped, and Nielsen was presented on stage with a sash of golden leaves and berries in admiration for her success in the role. She, of course, in true diva style, proceeded to sing the entire aria again. Now, what I love about this story is that that very same golden sash from 1883 dug out of the archives, walked on stage again 84 years later during the final night of the old Met before its move uptown to Lincoln Center. This time worn by another great Swedish singer and oddly no relation to the early Christine Nielsen, but this time by Birgit Nielsen, one of the great 20th century dramatic sopranos. Now, I can see that the curtain has just come down on the first act, and it's time for intermission. I'm going to refill my cup, and I will be right back with you shortly. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At 
least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. An opera performance, at least for many of our Gilded Age socialites, was all about the intermissions. Now, it wouldn't be fair to say that none of them liked the music nor paid attention to the actual opera, but being at the opera was, after all, about being seen, which, if you were a man, that meant illustrating that you were a player in the financial arena and wanted to connect with similar men. And if you were a woman, more often than not, it meant that you spent the performance surveying the audience for an eligible, financially appropriate young man to whom you could marry off your daughter. And it was during the intermissions that all this went on. The boxes functioned as your encampment, that is to say your office or your drawing room, during the duration of the performance. And by the way, on opening night, the curtain, having finally gone up at nearly 8.30, finally ended as the principals finished their curtain calls at 12.30 in the morning. There had been four intermissions that evening. Each box had a door opening onto the hall of the tier, often guarded by one's own valet. When you entered, there was a small anteroom for cloaks and a small sofa on which to sit. A curtain separated the forward section of the box where the actual seats were to watch, and I do see that loosely, the performance. During a performance, the house lights were left on full blast at the request of the box holders, so you could survey the audience for possible social targets. Talking and laughing from the tiers of boxes could be quite audibly heard throughout the evening while the singers were singing. A woman rarely ever left the box. It was up to any gentleman to visit her. When we see this actually in the opening scene set at the opera in Wharton's Age of Innocence, when Newland Archer comes to see Mae Welland in her family's box and in turn meets the Countess Olenska. It was the gentlemen who traveled from box to box, paying calls, making contacts, or solidifying their own chances for marriage. Often, the best view from some of the seats was actually at other seats in order to watch the audience. And let's be clear here, that often meant what they were wearing. In the upper tiers, in the less expensive seats, it was even worse. Of the over 3,000 seats in the theater for the rest of the theater's history, nearly a third of them only had a partial view of the stage. Since you owned your box and paid for it through an annual assessment, you could add decorative touches, including special fabric hung on the walls or particular flowers for the nights that you attended. 
The critics were deeply mixed on their reviews of the theater, the performance, the singers, and the overall experience. The acoustics, for those that were listening, seemed to be a great challenge, partly because the conductor, who was Italian, insisted on raising the orchestra from what was once actually a pit to a placement which was level with the parquet, which then forced any singers who happened to be toward the back of the stage to barely be heard. It also allowed those sitting in the prime seats close to the stage to have a clear and unobstructed view of the back of the conductor's bobbing head. There were further reports of sections of the house where high notes, which of course some of opera's most exciting moments, faded into nothing in their trip from the stage to the upper balconies. And all that fabric, whether added to the boxes for decoration or on the backs of the audience themselves, had the additional effect of dulling and absorbing the sound. If one chose not to, or by virtue of where they were sitting, couldn't actually watch the opera, there was always the fashion to pay attention to. In fact, the day before the opening night, the New York Tribune was quoted as commenting, no one had better learned the motto, in the time of peace, prepare for war, than the women of fashion. It goes without saying, and we'll discuss this in detail in many upcoming shows, that for society women, no matter what you said, wanted to say, or hesitated from saying, what mattered most of all was what you were wearing. In Paris, the couture of Charles Frederick Worth was making its way across the Atlantic and Gilded Age gowns were rated on whether they were or were not products of Worth's coveted couture salon. In fact, the story proliferated that the new elaborate costumes on the Met stage were made by Worth, which wasn't true, but it gives you an idea of how elegant they actually were. In the audience that particular night, well-dressed women seemed to choose New York dressmakers for their fashion, and columns made note, though, of two spectacular, actually verified Worth dresses spotted in Box 36, adorning the young Matthews sisters. Well, aside from the war on fashion, some chroniclers chose to define the first New York opera war as being ignited with the opening night of the New Met. If you remember the old Academy of Music back downtown, its impresario, Colonel James Mapleson, an Englishman, and by the way, that title, Colonel, was just a little suspect. He had no intention of giving up his stake in the opera game, even though the grand New Met had just stormed the field. On the very same opening night, he too presented Grand Opera. One of his star singers, the Hungarian soprano Etelka Gerster. I know, I know, a name on the tip of all of your tongues. He gave her top billing in Bellini's La Sonambula to compete with his former star singer Nielsen, who had jumped ship for some extra doubloons further uptown at the Met. That night, elite New Yorkers had to decide where they would best be seen. Gerster's Amina at the Academy, Nielsen's opening at the New Met, or the other society event in town, the New York Horse Show at Madison Square Garden. One tenacious, socially grabbing climber, about which I promise you many more tales, was Mrs. Perrin Stevens, the former Marietta Reed. In order to make sure that she was seen by everyone, everywhere, managed to start out the evening at the Academy, slip out at intermission, duck into one of her friend's boxes at the Met, duck out once again, and put in an appearance at the horse show before the night was over. 
Mrs. Perrin Stevens, a former grocer's daughter from Lowell, Massachusetts, who married into quite a sack full of cash, was not taking any chances in securing her place in society. So it's fascinating for me to think of opening night at today's Metropolitan Opera, which moved to Lincoln Center and left the old house on Broadway in 1966. I wonder just what those Gilded Age socialites would think of our modern opening night. Of course, there is wonderful fashion to be seen and admired, and thankfully, one is not stationed immobile in one's seat for an entire evening anymore, and it is no longer the box holders who own the theater and determine the repertoire. If we saw those early Met audiences from the Gilded Age transplanted to today, perhaps J.P. Morgan or some of his cronies would still be found dozing in the rear of their boxes, and Caroline Astor, the great Mrs. Astor, would still arrive and take her seat at precisely 9 p.m., regardless of what time the opera actually started, and would be long gone by the actual finale. But what I love in an audience today, and even amidst all the glitter that did exist back then, there are those that come to the opera and celebrate an opening night filled with new singers, new compositions, and the excitement and power of opera. They come just because they love and are moved by the transporting and uplifting music. And to me, there's nothing more beautiful and golden than that. Thank you for joining me for Divas, Diamonds, and Drama, opening night at the Metropolitan Opera, 1883. And join me every two weeks on the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. I invite you to be part of the Gilded Gentleman and support the work I do to research and write and create each episode by becoming a patron of the show. I invite you to visit www.patreon.com backslash the Gilded Gentleman. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.